Welcome to the DILF podcast, as in dad, I'd like to friend. I'm your host, Kevin Selden, and today I'll be talking with an artist whose TED Talk on co-parenting has been viewed over a million times. To discuss everything from finding ways to incorporate more creativity and passion into our lives as parents, to leading by example to be the best version of ourselves for our children. Joel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. Thank you. I've been doing a deep dive into some of your writing. It's really some beautiful stuff. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, in episode 10 of this podcast, we discuss our happiness checklist, the factors that can help to make a, a happier life. And we talk a lot about passion, almost a necessity in everyone's life. Yeah. And one of the factors that can really bring about happiness. And for many, uh, passion is something that you can't necessarily find through work. You know, for some lucky ones, there are ways to access that through work. But for a lot of other people, they find their passion through other outlets. And I'm wondering, as a creative with two children, (laughs) you know, wearing many hats as we all are as parents... How do you find the time for your passion? And how do you see work-life balance in your own life? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think there really is a balance. Honestly, is what, I, is what I'm recognizing when I'm realizing more than anything. Elizabeth Gilbert talks a lot about this when she, in her, in her book, um, Big Magic. And it's really like, it's not about waiting for the moment of creativity, but I think creating ways and instances in which the creativity can show itself to you. And the the way you do that is by, I think, looking for the creativity in everything that we're able to engage with. If that means I'm going to take a nap while they're napping because I recognize I need to be rested in order to do the work. If that even means, hey, listen, I need to work work out a deal with my partner that involves some level of like a schedule for this is the time that I'm going to do A, B, and C work. Even if nothing happens within that time, you're creating a foundation for an opportunity to present itself. You know, that is such a fascinating way to look at it, to create a a sense of flow in your household so that you have the space for the creativity to come when when it does and for the work to get done when it does and for special moments with your kid to happen instead of this structure and set times that we often find ourselves locked into. Exactly. And of course, it's important to have some sense of structure, but I think we often lock ourselves in a box. Yeah. When so much of it is actually out of our control. Just like you can't really control naps and 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 the desires of your child as much as we would all like to you know i think both of our children are awake right now as we uh, yes, yes, try to put them down yeah and i think and it's so important because it's it's important for us to not feel the pressure of like as a writer i think and, and you could and i know you understand this completely but the, the idea that you have to sit down in front of the computer and write like that's what you have to do and oh, it never works. It doesn't. It doesn't. But I do think there's something very divine about repetition. And so even just the sitting in front of the computer and recognizing, too, that our, we tend to think that the writing has to be this very linear process of I'm sitting down to write this thing about A, B, or C. Like, I'm sitting down because I need to write about this story. It's taking the boxes off 
or really taking taking ourselves out of the box of it has to look and feel a certain way, has to happen a certain way, and at a certain time in order for us to feel like we're fulfilling our creativity, when really that's not the case at all. What I find really interesting about what you just said is uh, the similarities between the beautiful moments with your child don't happen when you ever want them to. You're not, you know, like I'm going to turn on the video, do this, do this beautiful thing you just did. No, <laughs> exactly. take your picture. It's like they always happen in these unexpected times. That's why I hate living with the camera out because I feel like then you're living to record it instead of living for it. Yeah. And I think sure. that's so similar for parents who find themselves in this robotic state of keeping up with all the hats we have to wear on a daily basis and not allowing ourselves the opportunity to take time for ourselves to discover our passion and tap into our creative side because it feels so distant and unattainable. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I think that's also the beauty of creativity, the idea that we don't – part of it is like having to go seeking it, right, and and, and, and – the other part of it is it showing itself even when the moment doesn't feel opportune. I mean, I think it's very much like love. And I mean, granted, it's an old adage, but like, you know, it's when you're not looking for love, when you stop looking for love that you finally find it. And I think there's something to be said for that, for like even our creative practice, like the seeking of it will begat the work, but the work doesn't necessarily show up in the midst of the seeking. You know, I, I do a lot of meditating. Something I've learned a lot from a good friend of mine, Bo Lee, the, the idea that we get to meditate in our meditative practice doesn't have to happen while, while we're in a pose. It can happen while we're walking. It can happen while we're in conversation with people that we care about. It can happen in the shower. For me, it's asking God, they, whomever, the universe, to show me how and show me why. And me knowing that the 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 inquisition, the 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 the, the the invocation is an invitation for the work to happen. We may not get the answer we're looking for right then and there in the moment that we're asking for it, but if we're paying attention, if we're fully engaged in the act of being creative, then it allows us to be able to see those opportunities very clearly because we're we're investigating and looking for them. Um, but again, very much like love, that answer may not show itself while we're looking. It might show itself when we least expect it because the subconscious has been working in the background, I think, while we've been doing that work. I love that. And it's also just kind of a skill set. You know, we get ourselves familiar uh, with the ability to do that. And I feel like that is that is so analogous to parenthood in many ways, too. Yeah. You know, the it's just that you have to be available to the flow and for things to happen when they're going to happen. Absolutely. You know, Bruce Lee talks about water, you know, and, and shout out to Bruce Lee. But I love trees more than anything because, like, when you think of a tree in, in the midst of a hurricane, right, and how it moves and how it sways, it doesn't become like water, right? Like water, like in, in, in Bruce Lee's analogy, water becomes the shape of anything that you put into it. But, like, regardless of what's happening around me, Trees are very much a tree, regardless. You know, like they move with the wind. They are very much a found, they, they sit in the ground, like they're very firm in where they are, but they're still able to move with whatever is happening. I think that's beautiful. You know, there's this app called Headspace that I'm a big fan of. Yes. Mostly just a fan of the British voiceover. <laughs> but he has this video that expresses the best thing we can do for our brains is not jump into the traffic and the chaos when that happens in our brains, but stand on the side of the road and observe it. 
and that helps us to stay calm. And I think that that's such a great lesson for parenthood too. Sometimes we just kind of jump into the chaos. And yeah. I feel like whenever I take the time, it's hard to find the time, you know, with everything going on in our world. And I think I haven't been going with the flow mentality that you've mentioned. I very much have been fighting for some sense of structure that is just not completely available in parenthood or life right now in quarantine. Yeah. But I think that there is something really extraordinary about if you can just find 10 minutes or if you can utilize, you know, a partner or support network to get five minutes, something like Headspace just grounds me Mm. and and it gives me a moment to pause and to get my breath under control and then come back into the situation and actually enjoy the rest of the day as opposed to getting into the chaos and then all of a sudden you you get frustrated with your kid and the mm-hmm. and the day spirals into crap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that and, and that's so important. I think it's very much like if you're a surfer or a swimmer and you know the 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 pun is very much intended but you can't fight the current. Right? You can't fight what's here. And Buddhism talks a lot about this. Um like even when you think about like like apps like Headspace which I love or even just the meditative practice this all ties back to Buddhism and 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 the faith and and the patience and recognizing that what is here is already here. And I think some people tend to look at what is here as a as more of a reason for us to fight against it. And it's like that's actually creating more suffering for us. It's like, okay, if I'm here right in this moment and this is the thing that is troubling me, how can I respond to this in a way that's going to be healthy for me and potentially the other people who this might be affecting? Easier said than done as a person who is dealing with a teething infant. And when that teething <laughs> infant wakes you up at like three o'clock in the morning and you know you have like 10 deadlines that you're going to have to address when you wake up at eight o'clock. And you want to be your fullest self in those moments. You know, you can't be because you're going to be super tired. Um, but recognizing, okay, how can I respond in this moment that's going to create the uh, least amount of resistance? Because it's here. You know, like the baby's crying or your partner is on a call and you're on a call. So you both have to make a decision essentially of whose call is more important. Yeah, um, I that. Right? You know, like, and and so I think even that conversation is, it's not even about what's important or what's most important. It's like, what can I offer in this space that's going to create the the least amount of resistance and the most amount of love while also processing how I feel about doing anything. I might even do it begrudgingly, but hold space for that as opposed to denying what's already present, you know? I, I think that's beautiful advice. And I tend far too much to fight the tide because you get, I think it's the slight OCD in me that it's like, but this is the direction I was heading. And it's such a beautiful thing when you can go with the flow. Uh, That brings up a larger discussion when you are dealing with Mm co-parenting and there is so much flow that needs to occur because you're two different adults Mm -hmm. with different agendas who are trying to uh, deal with the same child or multiple children. And that, that requires so much of you giving in to the di- different tides that are coming at you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, you said in a piece that you wrote on Medium, which is your, your main publishing platform, you yes. stated, you wrote a beautiful piece, I believe in 2017, and you said, people will judge you for your choices 
and say, no, you are not the example. You are not the light you speak of. And I think that was something you wrote uh, when you were separated from your daughter for a short period of time. And I thought it was such a beautiful statement on parenting culture. And I wanted to talk about that in more detail. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think there's an idea of, and this goes for both um, mothers and fathers, and this is less about gender and more about roles. And I think that's a very important piece of that conversation. There were ways in which I think I was expected or was told to show up as a father that was very much steeped in like patriarchy and masculinity. And also like ways that I was supposed to show up as a father in direct relation to how women or those who identify as women are supposed to show up as mothers in their roles, quote unquote. And so for me, it, it, it was very much trying to get out of the way of the stigma and the projections that people will put in place on you based on your parenting style, your parenting relationship. Like at the time, um, Lila, who's my, who, who's my first daughter, who's now five, Lila, um, her mother and I, we, we, we were butting heads a lot about everything. It felt like everything was a stressor. It felt like everything was uh, a conflict. And you were not together at the time, correct? Right, correct, correct. And so really, you know, my co-parenting experience started with that. that that's what it was. And so that formed a lot of how I, I, I showed up in the spaces. And I, I think for me, it, it, it's, it was a pretty great training ground um, for exactly what I was talking to you about before, because I failed a lot. I failed a lot when it came to creating space for her to show up as her fullest self, creating space for her to process her own trauma and own misgivings about our changed relationship. I'm not going to say failed because I don't think that does justice either to our relationship or the other relationships of co-parents, whether that be separation, whether that be divorce, whether you've been together with a person for one day or 10 years. I, I don't I don't believe in the idea of a failed relationship if the product of that relationship is like a product of joy, right, which is a child. Um, so I think there's a shift, right? And, and so I did a very, I didn't do a good enough job of honoring the shift. And when I say that, what I mean is we, we didn't give each other enough time to be friends. You know, we had broken off our relationship after a, a, a somewhat brief courting period uh, and, and dating. Like we've been dating for like about roughly seven months before we found out she was pregnant and tried to make it work in a relationship, broke that off within the first trimester and then spent upwards of really three years just trying to figure out how we were going to show up for our daughter, Lila, but not doing a good enough job of how we were going to show up for each other as parents. I love that. You know, and, and it, was a, it was a process, but, but I think it was a learning process. And for me, what, what I always try to come back to is love. Like love has kind of been the anchor and, and empathy have been the anchors for a lot of my work. And sometimes I failed at it and failed horribly, but... The fact that I could keep coming back to it, I think, is what allowed for us to have this very beautiful relationship that we have now. So that even though Lila is, is in Houston with her mother, we are far healthier now than we were two years ago when she was literally maybe an hour away from me here in New York. And a lot of that, I think, is a testament to continuing to put work and effort into the co-parenting relationship. Um, as much as we were trying to put work and effort into the parenting relationship of our child. Now, 
how do you see yourself parenting differently than your own father? Well, <laughs> I think my father didn't really parent. He did. He couldn't. You know, my father. My father's a, a decorated Vietnam veteran who also suffered from PTSD. Who also had his own sexual trauma um, growing up as a child. Who also suffers from bipolar disorder and is a paranoid schizophrenic. And my father was dealing with all those things as a black man who had just come home from a very uh, difficult war, you know, and you had soldiers who were not well received, especially if you were a black veteran coming back into the community following Vietnam. So my father was dealing with all this alongside his, uh, his alcohol dependence. And so that played a role in how my father showed up and really didn't show up. And for me, I, I don't even think I, I was never the kid that was like, when I'm a dad, I'm going to do this. Like, I, I don't even think it was that because my father wasn't really present because of his illnesses. But as a kid, you weren't aware of those issues. Right. What was your view on him? It, it was my, my father didn't really seem like a father. I didn't know what a father was, but I knew I didn't feel safe around my father. Yeah. You know, And I knew when that person was in the household, I felt very uncomfortable. And so I never really attributed. It's very existential. Like I didn't really attach the role of father to him because he didn't really feel like a person that I would consider to be a father, you know, like my mom was my mom. And so I knew what a mom was because my mom showed up in this way for whatever reason, I never really attached or identified the, the role of a father to something I could compare my dad to. And I could go, well, I know dad does this and my dad doesn't do that. I never even thought that far into the process. I just knew at the time, like we fast forward to me becoming a father, I just knew how I wanted to show up for a person that I loved. And so that's what I put into Lila, my first child. Like, and that's what I put into everybody. You know, I, Bria and I were having, Bria, my partner, we were having a conversation and she said, jokingly, like, you're talking to me like you talk to Lila. And what I responded with was, I talked to everybody like I talk to Lila because I love Lila as a human being. And so for me, the love is no different. You don't talk down to her. You talk to her. Right. You know, like it, she, she's, she's a human. She might be a child, but she understands. And so for me, that and like as a writer, and I know you get this language is important. So there is, uh, there has never been a uh, gaga Google phase with any right. of my children. You know, my children are, my, uh, and a very good friend of mine, Ashley Simple, told me something. I think she had heard from a therapist, and it's something I've always carried with me. Like, we tend to think that we're raising children, but we're not. We're raising adults. You know, like, our children are going to grow up to be our age. And so we have to, I think, be mindful of that when we're dealing with them, when we're talking with them, right, and when we're engaging with them. But a lot of that I just learned from love and not from my dad. I didn't. And there was never a... I'm not going to be this or I'm going to be this because of my father. It was just more like, I'm going to be this and I want to be this because I recognize maybe those are the things that I want. And those are the things that I, I, I wish maybe I would have had. And so that's what I show up with when it comes to my, um, to my children, I think. I, it reminds me in our last episode, we discussed a lot the concept of it's not about raising good children. It's about raising good adults. Yeah, yeah. You know, so many times people say, um, you just have to show up. But your dad was physically there. He didn't leave. He was yeah. there, but he didn't show up emotionally. And I think yeah. we leave out that word. Because a yeah. lot of times people think, well, I didn't leave the home. I'm there. Yeah. But that's why the meditation and self-care is so important. Because I feel like it's about 
clearing the mind and being available emotionally. And that's yeah. how you're actually there. It's not about your physical presence always. Absolutely. And like, it, it is, it is really, it is quality over quantity for sure. You know, like the, 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 the impact that you can have over the course of an hour, two hours or three hours is magical. You know, whether it be with people, whether it be with like adult friends or your children. Like I think of the moments where my father would whisper in my ear when he was drunk, like the CIA is coming to get us. Like that was an encounter that lasted no more than five minutes that I've never forgotten. And so what I think we have to understand is that every moment matters. And granted, I'm at an age now where I can reconcile the trauma my father went through and how he was not afforded or given the opportunity or space to process any of that. And that's how he showed up. And so I think it's really important for us when we're navigating our own parenting relationships with our parents to recognize the context in which our parents were parenting, you know, and where they came from and being able to give some level of grace. I mean, granted, there are, there are children who are coming from extremely abusive households, like more abusive than like I, I saw or encountered, I think. But I think if we're going to heal, right, and show up for our children in a way that ensures we don't project our past onto their presence and futures, we also have to deal with the trauma that our parents had to face that they didn't have a headspace. You know, like my dad didn't have a headspace app he could go to. Meditation wasn't the thing when my father first became a parent, you know, like, and he was also a black man in America who just had, like, who already had things more difficult anyway. And generationally, men didn't have a, a big support network back then. We don't even have it now, but... Exactly. No, that's it. And it's like taking all those things into consideration, which is why, like, when we talk about a Kimberly Crenshaw who essentially created the term intersectionality, you know, like, when you look at the intersections of class, of race, of, of, of what your privilege is, there are so many things that create the circumstances um, that we show up in. And we have to honor those intersections, I think, in order to have a better understanding of who we are as a people in a community. I think that's beautiful. I'm curious, so there's another thing you wrote. You said, I am dependent on my own arms for solace. So asking for assistance is a space my body has no knowing of. Yeah. And it is such an interesting statement because for someone who seems to live in so much love, it's a statement that seems to be closed off to support from others. Yeah, and, and, and I think that statement was less about being closed off to it, but more like it, it's been, it, it was foreign to me. And I think, and there, there are a lot of empaths, I think who, who share this and it's something I like talking about because I want folks to break out of the habit where giving, giving can feel very therapeutic. Like I love to give. Receiving was a very difficult thing for me, and receiving love is an act is also an act of vulnerability. It's a very it's a very um, strong act of vulnerability, and it took therapy for me to recognize that when people give you a compliment and you deflect, like someone will tell you, like, "Oh, Kevin, I love your hair," and you're like, "Oh, but what about your hair?" Right? You know, like a it, it can be perceived as disingenuous one, but then two, what it's also saying is that the gift right? The gift that this person is offering you, this gift of a compliment or this gift of love, you are saying you do not want to receive by deflecting it. And so for me, it was like, oh, okay, so I should just say thank you, right? And get over the discomfort of wanting, of, of acknowledging the good in me, 
because we're taught that acknowledging that is an act of, of, of selfishness as opposed to an act of love. Like someone is gifting you with this, this, this generous offering of language or whatever. And far be it for me to then deny that because I'm too stuck in my self-deprecation to honor that. And so the work for me has been, I can give the love and now I, I need to be able to receive it. I was very, it was very foreign to me. It like my body didn't understand how to accept it because love came. It, it, it seemed like when I was growing up, love came with caveats and not from my household, but from the community. Like I had to be smart in order to get love. I had to be talented in order to get love. I had to be excellent. And it, and it really stems from this idea of black excellence. You know, like I think this is a, it's a societal conversation, but you know, you're taught as a black person that you have to be excellent in order to be worthy. You know, if you would have worn a suit, then maybe you wouldn't be harassed by the police. Or if you didn't wear your do-rag during this call, right, then maybe people would take you seriously. If your parents weren't sagging, all these other things that we use as reasons as to why America tends to devalue black lives. And it doesn't matter. You know, Dr. King was killed on a balcony in a suit. And so for me, it, it's it's been pulling, pulling, kind of pulling away and detaching from that and recognizing any, like, I don't need to be of a certain caliber in order, in order to be worthy of love. These, it's you, I think we've had such different life experiences and yet we have so many similarities in so many ways. Yeah. And Isn't I, that great? I, I love it. And I, and I love, I, I think so much about the fact that I have always been so good at giving and I've never been comfortable with compliments, whether I, and I do crave them. And then I don't like when I get them. I don't know how to do it. And I feel like it's such a statement on something we're going to pass on to our kids and and kind of breaking old habits, but also Mm -hmm. on the, it's the building blocks to building a strong support network. If you can't accept their help, then you can't necessarily ask for their help which is one of the most yeah. important and crucial things to parenthood in the modern world. Absolutely. 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 And so it's, and, and it's, it's leading by example. You know, I, when Lila cries, you know, it's very important for me to, to, to have the conversation with her. Like, A, it's okay for you to cry. And B, like, let's talk about what you're crying about. And if you don't feel like talking about that, I'm going to give you the space to do that because my daughter's an Afro-Latina. She's going to grow up in the world. People are going to see her as a black woman, you know? And, and so part of that is I want her to feel like she has complete autonomy over her body, over her language, over how she gets to show up in the world. But the reason I get to do that is because I'm also trying to do that and navigate that space as well for myself so that she sees me doing the work. And that's why, you know, when we were talking earlier, I love trying to bring Lila and Wes into places where I'm doing my work, whether it's the work of empathy, whether it's the work of like, oh, a podcast or an interview or whatever. I want them to be a part of those conversations. Like I've brought Lila to poetry performances before because I want her to see me in my element. The same way I would want her to see her mother to know like, hey, there's a reason why she's studying and going to school and recognizing that she has autonomy as well and her being is not attached to her role as a mother the same way my being is not attached to my role as a father. But the only way she can get that is if I'm walking the path and doing my work. And doing my work also involves 
creating space for community in that work so that people get to show up for us, right? Because you know this, Kevin, like we, it's a village. It takes a village to do this. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's more than just mom and dad. I think that vulnerability feels like it's a part of your being. And I think that if you're not vulnerable, mm-hmm. I don't know how you access a lot of those lessons mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, are available to to learning them and practicing mm-hmm. them because I don't mm-hmm. think they're necessarily organic to anyone. Yes. But you, you, you recently said on one of your social media channels, being vulnerable is not a character flaw. <laughs> yeah. And I, I love that quote. And I feel like it's, it's probably why places like Newsweek and uh, Gates Foundation have been looking to you as a voice. I feel like it is something that is so necessary in today's world and so transcendent across background and color of skin and, and, and upbringing. I feel like accessing your vulnerability is, is so important to the topic of masculinity and being vulnerable in front of your child. And I'd love you to speak on that. Well, you know, first of all, thank you. Second of all, yes, I think there are two kinds of parents, right? There are parents who are carpenters and there are parents who are gardeners. Um, Parents who are carpenters feel like they're going to create the path in which their children need to walk. And whether that be a job or whatever the case might be, a career path. But for me, I'm a gardener. And, 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 and a gardener kind of just lays out the lay of the land for a child to kind of play and, and walk in and walk through. And recognizing that boundaries are actually freedom. And all that comes for me from like leaning into the vulnerable spaces that are going to create the opportunities for my children to, 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 to walk and to be their fullest, most free selves. And it, it's been a process. It's been a process for me to, to kind of detach myself from what we've been told masculinity is supposed to look like. I, I used to want to show up in rooms as the loudest, as the funniest, as the uh, smartest. And some of that is, is steeped in like wanting attention, especially wanting attention from women. And also the, the, the idea of being an alpha male and what that means, um, I, I, I firmly believe the sooner we can detach from what masculinity and femininity are, the more we can just be free to be whomever we're supposed to be for the relationships we show up in. You know, because I do believe in very much a masculine and feminine energy, and those by definition really are just like hard and soft per se. And it doesn't mean that you can't be a woman with masculine energy to very much in a way that like, I very much know that I'm a man who carries feminine energy and I'm in touch with my feminine energy. My feminine energy allows me to show up for my children in a way that is of emotional support. Um, while also, you know, carrying the weight of whatever that masculine energy is for that moment in time. But part of the work is recognizing what it is so then I can detach from it and vulnerability and leaning into those spaces, I think allows me to do that. I absolutely love that. I think that is something that is so crucial for every human on this planet to access and and acknowledge both their their traditional masculine and feminine space within them. Uh-huh. And hopefully it can help to stop the divides that make us think there's these traditional gender roles that need to happen in families that exactly. are just not they're just holding us back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, they're holding us back. And it's 
you know, when we look at what's happening with COVID, and, you know, I'm seeing less of it now, but there was a lot of talk about getting back to normal. And I just keep stressing to people, like, normal got us here. Yes. Normal normal is what's gotten us to this predicament of really, of, of whether we're talking about Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, whether we're talking about this pandemic that's taking lives and, and forcing people to, to leave their homes and lose their jobs. That's what the normal, quote unquote, was. You know, like, like th- this is not new. And so I think what we have to look for is a new way of thinking, a new way of being, dismantling any and all systems that will oppress people and, and oppress thoughts and, and, and oppress imagination. And that's really what my work is steeped in. Uh, but, but yeah, it, it, it's about detaching from what we thought was things were supposed to be. And also recognizing that when we talk about things are working, who are they working for? Yes. You know, like who 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 gets to like take advantage from however systems were working, you know, and, and, and really looking at that and saying that if it's not liberating all people, then it's not liberating at all. If if we don't nurture everyone, then yes. everyone will get hurt. And yes. I think it's such an, an interesting statement on the fact that quarantine uh, and we say this a lot in this podcast, it hasn't done so much as to create new problems in our world mm. as it has to shine a very bright light on the yep. problems that have been in existence for so yes. long that we've been yes. ignoring. Yes. Yeah. And, and and I think traumatic events do that. You know, they just highlight, you know, I, I think money, I think opportunities make us more of what we already are. And I think trauma does very much the same thing. Like trauma just brings out, to your point exactly, it just brings out the things that are already inherent. It just makes them more visible. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why I think COVID has been so important is because it's a lot like when we talk about what's ex- what it's exposed, I think it's also exposed to holes in our relationships. And not just that, but how we can fix them. You know, um, I, I think about how often I kind of relied on seeing people in person. And that's where I get my most energy from. I love being with people. There's nothing more I enjoy than a good conversation and being with people I care about and love and, and seeing them face to face. But a lot of the times scheduling would get in the way of it. And so you'd be like, oh, well, I can't meet up with you on Tuesday. How about next Wednesday? Yada, yada, yada. As opposed to now, recognizing like we could just see each other, like the ability to do that was at our fingertips. And it was always there. But I think there was a, a, a laissez-faire approach that we took to how we engage with our community and the people we care about. Where, whereas now I think we are fully recognizing that we need to talk and see people it's how we function as humans. And what I'm hoping is that we won't take that opportunity for granted once we're afforded the ability to kind of get back to going outside and not normal, but being able to be outdoors in a way that feels more comfortable for us, even with a mask on. Like there's something about being able to engage in that way, but technology has allowed us to close the gap in a way. And also I think revitalize some relationships that maybe had fallen to the wayside because we realize we need each other more than we ever have. I could not agree more. And I think it, it also just touches upon the importance of support network and having other people in our lives. And I think if quarantine's taught us anything, which it's taught us so much so far, but it's that it's, it's connection is crucial. So crucial, so crucial. And like, it impacts everything. It affects how we show up for work. It, it affects how we show up for each other. Like we, we have to, we have to communicate and we have, and like that connection, it flows into our creativity and it flows into our creativity as parents, as partners, 
as whatever our role is, you know? Thank you so much for taking the time today. I feel like I really needed this. It, this conversation has been very cathartic with everything I've been feeling and going through and struggling with, with work-life balance and, uh, and realizing that it's really more about flow and, mm-hmm. and about not resisting the tide yeah. is, is a beautiful sentiment. Yeah, and, and it's important, you know, and, and, and recognizing, like, you can't compare, like, this is the only time when, like, saying new normal is okay, and I think it's when you're a new parent, because it's so easy for us, especially if you're a creative, who identifies as a creative, to, like, compare your new, this new version of self to the older version, and, like, who Kevin was, who Joelle was before they had children is very different. You're a whole new person, and I think what's important for us as, as creatives when doing the work is recognizing like your child is not the only person who was newly birthed, right? Like you two, we are newly new creatures. Like we're new human beings because of this process. And so we have to honor that process. And part of honoring that process is saying, Hey, I'm not inspired right now. And, and being with that and being okay with that and recognizing that making space for that is going to create more opportunity for the things that do inspire you to come to the surface. I love that. Any kind of final dad truth to to leave us with? I think it's really important for us to acknowledge that we as fathers, though we might not have the same physical experience, right, of, of pregnancy and holding a child in our womb, I think we can also, though, suffer from some of the same symptoms that, 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 that mothers are afforded following the birth of a child. You know, like when, like my experience with Lila was very different than my experience with Wes. And with Wes, granted, I was not diagnosed. I, I did, I, I felt, I can look at the symptoms and, and as a person who has dealt with his own mental health struggles, very clearly recognize how depressed I was. And I think you mentioned this before, while we were on, on our other call, like how paternity felt lonely. And I could see how it was showing up in like the frustration. I was just angry and, you know, create, I think it's going to be important for us to create and like something you're doing now, Kevin, which is so important, creating more space for fathers to, to, to share their stories about that and what postpartum can look like for a dad, you know, and what that looks like when you don't have the space or a mommy group, right? If you don't have the dad group that you can talk to about this, it can feel very lonely because like I felt detached. I felt detached from West. I didn't. Because I was also void of the opportunity to, like, build a relationship with a child, which fathers don't get to have, right? Like, right. a father, you don't get to, you're not carrying a child in your body. The closest you get is from talking to the child in the belly and back, but you're not given that proxy. And so you have to create that and hope that it exists. And sometimes it, it doesn't. And you have to work at it, like, to the point where now, West, like, the relationship West and I, and I have is so beautiful and it's different. It's different than the relationship I have with Lila, who's my first. And so, but it took work to get there. And so I think it's important for us to recognize that dads experience the same things. It might be different to a certain degree, and of course it is, but it's important for us to hold space for that truth. Truer words have not been spoken. And <laughs> I, I look forward to continuing this discussion, whether on the podcast or off. And I wish you so much luck in everything you've been working on. And thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for creating the space, man. Like, we need need more brothers out here doing that. So I'm thankful and grateful for it. Thank you so much. Thank you, bro. I appreciate you, man.